And I have to say my own uh, knowledge of this time period is fairly limited, the 17th and 18th centuries, so I did some quick skimming through of, of, of texts and th things of this sort, but I really wanted to figure out what was this time period like? The one interesting point for me was, well, there's a few that caught my memory, but Rousseau, for instance, thinking of Geneva at the time of Calvin as a model of societal development, which I'd never heard before. Um, another one was the emergence of the coffee house as an urban sort of phenomena at the same time period as this eruption of thinking. So in order to understand the, the 17th, 18th century, it's probably is useful to go back to the 16th century for a moment um, just to understand how much Europe changed during the period just before um, the period we want to talk about. So you, you have the, the, the rise of Protestantism, you have challenges to moral authority in Europe um, because that's what we're talking about here. Um, you, the Pope is no longer seen as this ultimate authority figure. The Holy Roman Emperor is no longer... Um, the powerhouse that um, it used to be. So basically you, you have a, a Europe that all of a sudden loses its stability. It loses its authority because there's no longer a Catholic, Roman Catholic Church dominating um, any moral discourse. Uh, this goes hand in hand with, of course, technological advances, especially the printing press, uh, which means that all of a sudden there's much greater access to information, to discourse, and it's no longer dominated by the Catholic Church. Um, that leads to a 16th, 17th century um, where people are starting to ask questions. Uh, whereas Hobbes, who is one of the early uh, movers in this case, still very much focuses on how can we restore the stability, how can we create a society or keep a society from collapsing from anarchy because it's scary to face a world where there's no moral authority, where you live in a Westphalian anarchical system. Hobbes and a few others, um, Rochefoucauld and, and others, are, are very much focused on trying to create some kind of legitimacy for the Westphalian Leviathan, for the, for the state to keep controlling basic dynamics. Other people, um, especially someone like John Locke, start saying, okay, hang on, this actually provides us the opportunity to start questioning the foundations of who we are and where we want to go. Uh, what is the role of human society? Is it purely stability? Is it purely making sure that there is this king or prince that can um, rule society for the better of all? Because as long as the Leviathan is there, uh, war and anarchy don't don't occur, or is it about something greater than that? Is it about uh, human well-being? Is it about the individual expressing themselves and exploring their own possibilities? And so that's that's change from a relatively clear moral framework to all kinds of existential doubts about who we are as human beings, then leads into the 16th, 17th, uh, especially 18th century. Uh, where you see the rise of people like Rousseau, uh, very much through uh, salons, and uh, where philosophers came together, not even so much les philosophes, but, but, but they weren't uh, necessarily philosophers as such. They were intellectuals who combined their knowledge to develop intellectual ideas and ask these questions that uh, Locke um, started. And, and, and you see this very clear movement towards a society that focuses on the individual rather than greater social or religious truths. And of course, that opens the door to an awful lot of potential dangers, but also an awful lot of 
intellectual wealth because once you start asking that like who are we do we start with um, a certain set of natural laws as a human being or do we create our own laws does it does it all depend on our own experiences and our own accumulated knowledge or is there some kind of deity that still imposes a certain structure to who we are and what we're supposed to do so this this shift in in broader european society what what circles are we speaking of is it specifically within intellectual classes that this rumbling transformation is occurring or is it within common no, public is, as well no no this is very much uh, th- th- there's a few diff- differences between countries um, but if you look at uh, certainly if you look at england and um, if you look at france this is the the rich upper upper class especially young students uh, th- by the way this is also the first time that universities are really a thing so um, rich children can go to university um, and then they receive the tools to actually start asking these questions. And also, as from a hobby perspective, it's not even so much like uh, necessarily a political movement in the beginning, but very much like asking these questions while having a glass of wine. Very much an upper class kind of thing. The differences are that if you, for example, look at the Netherlands, um, there it was uh, not so much the aristocracy, but but the, the rich uh, burghers, the ones who... Uh, rose up through trade and 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 all that um but no this is this is an elite that pushes this forward and it really is is there a hierarchy of their hobbies i mean is it a i mean it was fascinating to hear for instance just i think i delved into rousseau more than anybody else but the rousseau playwright musician fashion it, like everything from architecture to political theory he seemed quite versed with well yeah and and that was in, in some ways, it was easier to be versed in those things because they were more limited, right? I mean, if you want to choose one hobby like that right now and you want to do it properly, you just don't have time for anything else because you have to deal with 500 years of development. That's not a challenge that Rousseau was facing because it was all relatively new and relatively, um, you know, on uncharted territory. The thing there is that it was a there was this excitement of uh, people who finally had the economic um, space as well as the intellectual space to explore all these things so it was like a candy store that they walked into they thought oh once you have that intellectual ability you have the right kind of education and you have the economic potential to 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 delve into these things all of a sudden you you see all these shiny objects right you see hey who are we let's uh, let's explore that hey how do i um how do I write uh, music? Hey, how do I become an actor? How do I um, how do I become a playwright? It, and that's what you very much see, not just with Rousseau, but with a lot of talented young intellectuals who just all of a sudden had this huge potential in front of them. And it's very difficult then to say, you know what, I'm going to leave all those cool things about theater behind. I'm just going to focus on philosophy. No, you want to have it all, right? Um and, 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 and that, that is very much in line with this idea of exploring the individual. For the first time, people were actually asking this question, like, who are we as human beings beyond survival, beyond power games of feudal society or anything like that? Who, 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 um, who do you want to be and can you create that person or are you given a personality and are you given a life Without any determine, uh, without any ability to, to to determine your own path. So these things all come together. That goes hand in hand as well with uh, this 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 collapse of authority that continues, by the way, in the 17th and 18th century. Of course, um, completely collapsing with the French Revolution. Um, so on the one hand, you've got a decreasing centralized authority structure and an increasing 
hunger for understanding the individual. And, and that's, that's at some point the pendulum completely switches to the individual side, thereby delegitimizing any bad kind of governance that, that um, might be witnessed, such as, for example, Louis XVI, who was the final um, uh, straw that broke the camel's back, so to say, in French society. And how many... So if, if there... Um I guess this is the in the first session you talked about these individuals who were educated and they valued the capacity or the ability to talk this freedom of speech quite highly. So it seems like the there's an interesting again a partnership here where a profoundly new level of education is achieved, but at the same time, it seems like a perhaps a vulnerability or a um, uh, 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 how would I put this? They may not be so sure of what they're theorizing. So I, I'm curious about, in terms of, let's say, governance structures, what's the range of ideas actually floating about being discussed in these salons, the coffee houses, and so on? Um, I, I would I would argue that, that this is something that's quite easy to sort of... Um, to look at from a 2019 perspective and to sort of judge it like, hey, these ideas were dangerous or these ideas were lighthearted. In those days, um, it was an organic process in which nobody asked necessarily in the beginning, does this lead to revolution? You know, it's easy for us now to say, hey, we saw the student uh, protest in France uh, before the French Revolution, therefore clearly indicating that there was trouble uh, happening. But even those student protests, no. Uh, the things that Les Miserables is uh, based on and those kinds of things. Uh, even then, at the time, yes, they were annoying for the authorities, but they weren't seen as an existential threat to society yet. So, uh, be because nobody was considering the idea of a monarchy being overthrown, it just wasn't on the radar screen yet, right? Even though from our perspective now, it seems so obvious that it was going to happen. Now, that doesn't mean that the authors... Uh, writing about these issues weren't aware of the potential dangers it's just that the authorities weren't really recognizing it yet as such they weren't there in the salons checking up like you know what, what maybe Chinese authorities now in the 21st century would do on their own intellectuals that wasn't really the case because it just wasn't considered as dangerous as maybe they should have considered it to be so the, the range is quite broad if you look at the readings and if you if you look at historians writing about the time period uh, it, it, it literally in one conversation could be about the uh, beautiful painting and then straight away after uh, the question um, is is a centralized authority legitimized mm. right which obviously completely opens the door to future revolution and future but that that was just a light-hearted conversation that a few uh, intellectuals then took very seriously and started writing about okay what is actually the role of the state this is a time that that um, intellectualism was growing for the very first time in such a way and therefore there was no real understanding of the potential impact it would have and do you see is there a um a kernel embedded within those discussions that paves the way for a certain discourse to take over the rest is there a reason why representative democratic structures republics as a whole became a wave that swept through a vast variety of countries very much so. I mean, there there are differences again between countries. So if you look at the 17th century, um, Britain in some ways was already a parliamentarian, if not democracy, certainly uh, nowhere near as um, centralized and as 
totalitarian or despotic as as maybe the French uh, French uh, crown was. Uh, there, there were already political differences during these debates before these debates actually led to actual results. Um, for for varying re- reasons, and uh, again, the Netherlands. I speak about Netherlands, of course, because I'm Dutch. Um, also, also had a very fast track development that laid the foundations for democracy much later on. But what you what you very much can see is that the moment you go away from Hobbes, and the moment you say the Leviathan is not justified by his or her own existence. Um, it is about the Leviathan or the centralized authority supporting the individual in their own personal development, which is basically what the whole Enlightenment was about. At that moment, um, you open the door to saying, okay, if the Leviathan isn't functioning properly, if the centralized authority is functioning properly, regardless of whether it's a king or whether it's a constitutional monarchy or anything like that, um, we are entitled to take action because this is what life is about. It's about your own, finding your own path, finding your own individualism and not being some kind of servant of a larger state. If, if, if you look at the writings of Rousseau and if you look at the writings certainly of Locke, uh, very explicitly so in fact, um, it is very clear that, that the basis for uh, democratic revolution, if you, if you like, uh, comes from, from that idea, from starting with the individual, this then, in the 18th, 19th century, started, became slightly um, had a dichotomy between the Anglo-Saxon world, if you like, the way that the the Scottish school um, and, and and then later on uh, people like Mill and others, and then of course the U.S. founding fathers interpreted this, and maybe continental Europe, uh, which was a little bit more moderate in in putting the individual there at front and center of of the discussion but 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 generally these ideas that started with these these salon conversations about hey i like art hey i like uh painting hey by the way uh do we still like the government those those kinds of conversations are very very revolutionary except that they weren't recognized necessarily as such and we're more seen as a hobby the hobby part is is a uh, i think let me put it this in this context for me the probably the connection to to cities is in the late 1800s and the early 1900s you see a really similar rise of a a new sort of group and then afterwards a, a revolutionary change of how we look at architecture and urbanism so in that context it was the birth of the professional uh, the professional architect the professional doctor and so on um there's actually a, a funny book on uh, the history of surgery where apparently uh, um, there is a debate between barbers and surgeons about who should be recognized as the um, proper authority to take out a person's tonsils. And barbers, I guess, historically had done this. And then, you know, this is when medicine is becoming, I think it's late 1800s or something for medicine. Um, but it's they're, they're saying, no, no, you have to allow proper doctors to do this and barbers throw up a fit and eventually surgeons become that. But so architects, lawyers, um, all these folks essentially get uh, a bit more codified in the early 1900s. And I, I think from that codification, something different happens compared to what you're describing in that the professional isn't engaging in a hobby. So opinion often become veiled as fact. And this begins to shape uh, quite substantially how serious a single architect or an urbanist word is taken. Within the context that you're describing, the fact that it's a hobby 
is quite interesting. So I had read this article on um, the, the brief sort of investigation that I had in PhD about how Lockean concepts begin to influence uh, our, our construction of American society and American cities. But it basically said between the 1770s and the late 1780s, there was this critical feature of Lockean thought that got put more and more into doubt. I think it had something to do with the conception of property if you're not actually the one toiling on that property. But effectively, the paper was talking about how if the U.S. Uh, revolution was in the 1780s rather than the 1770s, it would have altered dramatically the, the conception of the Bill of Rights. So the, the question is, how certain were folks like Rousseau in what they were conceptualizing? Were they, were they taken out of context in terms of the final uh, mobilization of a thought into a societal form? Is there a, is there a pause in their, theories, in, their, in their discourse that's taken too far and the vulnerability of this discussion is taken out of it? Because the way you're describing it sounds highly organic, highly flexible, everything is up for debate, but the way it seems to hit the ground is now we have this is the way to go forward. That step, even though I'm sure that um, uh, someone like Rousseau would have, you know, and he, he did write about this, would be very aware of political consequences from this. But that actual step of taking it into the real world and, and um, that leading to a revolution or violence or clear overthrow of traditional systems, that was done by others, not by them. And slightly later in on the on that path, right? Um, so, uh, what you what you, what you see is that you've got you've got these intellectuals asking all these questions. That in itself is revolutionary because it opens the door to a new political discourse. Politicians, or what we would now call politicians, leaders, um, also mostly, or if not maybe uniquely, um, from uh, elites, from upper class uh, families and groups clearly take that into the realm of, hey, you know what? Uh, we now need to put this into action. So it was, if, if you look at uh, the violence that did exist in Paris uh, in the decades before the French Revolution, that wasn't necessarily these great authors. Uh, it was, uh, was, was the students who, um, you know, maybe with some youthful arrogance, thought that they could, could uh, take these ideas and create a better society by straightaway challenging the existing authorities. And this is, this is also related to uh, the fact that this is slightly before the Industrial Revolution really kicks in. So at that time, there is no real sense yet of um, the in intellectual elites being challenged by other classes yet, right? There's no, at that time, we're not talking about worker movements. We're not talking about labor movements. We're not talking about anything else. So basically, it's a very luxurious position that they're in where they can say, oh, you, we've got nothing to fear. We, the only question is, hey, can we take these cool intellectual ideas into a practical realm? It seems like almost a harmless act of violence if, <laughs> in that sense. Like, let's, let, let's see how, how far this goes. Um, of course, then the French Revolution brings everything back to reality because that was a complete shock to the system uh, with, with, of course, extremely violent consequences. Um, but until then, it, it, it very much seems a game. And then when you talk about um, the professionalization of this process, 
that 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 then must be the result of a of mass movements that are very much related to the industrial revolution right where a professional is needed uh, and is not necessarily part of those elites right um, if you were a doctor in the 17th century you were part of those philosophers you were someone who oh you had you had these philosophical conversation and afterwards you would check the health of your friends you know that kind of thing because it was very small very small scale everyone knew everyone the moment you talk about the 19th century, that's when you have millions of people who actually need access to healthcare, who actually have the economic means. And at that moment, you see that professionalization take place, I would assume. I, I know in architecture, the big one is the, the birth of the engineer. Um, and, and that begins to put into question what the role of the architect is. And that begins to solidify what the architect actually is in comparison, both in terms of legal liability, but also in terms of the scope of education, professionalization, accreditation, things of that sort. And is at that stage, is politics already a thing for within the architectural uh, conversation? The, the unusual one is, um, so I've studied architecture in three pockets in the US. One is the Southeast uh, in, in a university called Auburn University. One is in the Northeast at Cornell, and then in the Northwest in, in Oregon, University of Oregon. And the interesting thing for me, hopping through those schools was that each school um within each school we were taught the discourse of architecture as if it was the total discourse of architecture but it turns out every school every sort of region of the u.s has a pocket of the discourse that they're really discussing so i i don't know if i can give a whole image of the discourse of architecture but for from my reading of it one of the first fellows to really think of it on a slightly political level was a fellow by the name of Le Corbusier, and he, you know, gets quite a bit of quite a bit of pushback. Um, for instance, in his projects in Algiers, where he talks about taking a city and essentially making a highly efficient machine out of it. There's a big Marxist pushback against it, saying you've essentially transitioned a city into an assembly line, um, and there is. I think within the you know the Bolshevik movement and so on, a very clear politicization of of architecture. Uh, and I, there's a funny interaction between Corbusier and the Bolsheviks, and what comes after. Um, in that Corbusier is recognized as a bourgeois architect by them, and he goes back saying oh, they don't understand my you know the brilliance of what I'm trying to do. But for from what I gather, Corbusier may be one of these you know critical figures that at least vocalized the politicization of architecture and it was at a, a scale of um you know the urban and even the regional on some on some scale and he maybe he is a figure to look at because he is at that specific moment where the professionalization of the career is coming in the capacity to build on a scale at which we've never really been able to build is starting to get set in motion and with this expert class arising suddenly you have people saying asking people very large questions and the professionals coming back and saying we have the answers with a bit of doubt within their own heads but how it's vocalized is completely without doubt and then it so that becomes mobilized very quickly which is a, a different um, relationship than what you just presented with the 17th and 18th century in that with the architect and the urbanist in a way they're both the political actor and the theorist they're the ones mobilizing it into action but also the ones presenting the discourse. With what you're saying, it was there was a 
folks writing and discussing it and thinking about how it could be done, but there's a completely different group of folks um, putting it on the ground. How the, the political actors actually engage with the, the manifesting of this theory into the real world, how certain were they? Did they see it as, let's just shift from this existing system and fix things and, and look, this other model seems to work if we, if we can give it a shot? Or did they think of it as, we've created the, the end state of society? No, I, I think very much that they sold themselves as an important process of understanding the, the essence of humanity and the reasons of why we're here on this earth better, right? So what, what you see is a lot of them are moving away from uh, uh, religion, but they still very much call themselves deists. Uh, so people who sort of believe in a non-personal God who doesn't interfere with day-to-day -day activities, but still exists somewhere. Uh, and, 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 and as a result, they, they never took the step of saying, hey, we have now created the perfect kind of society, maybe elements of it. So very much as focused on education, of course, and try to create the perfect type of education for a young elite uh, upper class person to, uh, uh, to follow. Um, but uh, they, they very much saw, their readings very much indicate that they saw themselves as founders of a path rather than founders of a end result. Um, and so, and that's maybe why um, it was exciting for them to face the United States all of a sudden, to have, hey, actually, now, uh, all of a sudden, we have this chance to put all of these thoughts and all of these ideas into a practical reality that could very well be the end model that society lives in, right? So that was the, the rise of the, the, the ability to create a country from essentially nothing, uh, at least conceptually. Uh, you know, taking lessons from the past was an extremely exciting moment for them to test out their theory. I do not believe that um, that there was any sense that they had already found all the answers. That that is not that's not my reading of 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 their their uh, writings. It sounds like a mortifying moment to be honest. There's a within. I think most architects have this moment, but the first project um, that I remember that I had authorship in that became real there was this substantial fright as the construction process was happening that what you thought and designed on paper and in the computer you know digitally and, and analog that maybe it, it wasn't quite right that that it wasn't going to emerge in that light and this was a i don't know a, a thousand square foot addition kind of thing a, a hundred square meter addition so the thought of taking and sculpting a, a nation state it, I, I can understand the exhilarating concept of it, but also the, I mean, it must have been quite a frightful um, moment. I, I would imagine so. I, I, would, I would think that uh, their way of justifying this, taking such a big risk uh, with, you know, whatever you choose, it's got to have an impact on, uh, on a lot of people for a very long time. Um, their, their way of legitimizing that process and actually being able to make decisions um, with so many options in front of them was basically by looking at the tragedy of Europe, as they saw it, and at least avoiding that. So whatever they did, they wanted to make sure that they wouldn't fall into the same traps as European societies had done, right? And that, that allows you to really, okay, we might make some mistakes, there might be certain things that will not be perfect, as we also discussed last time. I mean, founding fathers were very much aware that the, fragile, the system is fragile, that the U.S. Uh, 
constitution, its its system, is by no means guaranteed to be a universally everlasting uh, doctrine. they very much wrote about that, but at the same time, whatever they did, it seemed better than where they came from, right? Mm. Or where at least their ancestors came from. Regarding where they came from, too, how 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 much of a homogeneity of monarchy was? Is there any pocket within the proverbial West that was radically different? I, I mean, Rousseau, for instance, mentioning Geneva. I'm not sure of or Calvin's Geneva specifically. Right. Are there pockets of of radically different societal structures before that time period? Absolutely. The this 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 all again starts in the 16th century, where all of a sudden you have this collapse of moral authority because the Catholic Church is no longer seen as the end all um, uh, legitimizing factor. And uh, what you then see is that you've got um, on the one hand a, a the seven provinces, the Dutch Republic that is a republic for at least it switches between monarchy and republic mm. uh, quite a lot, but uh, it's nowhere near anything uh, that we would consider a despotic monarchy. Uh, of course, where those voting are the people with money and power and wealth, but still people are voting, people have influence on the political process in a way that basically didn't exist in France until the revolution, in a way that didn't definitely didn't exist in Spain until the slow decay of the Spanish monarchy. Um, then you've got, for example, England, and later the, uh, Britain, which uh, even with the rejection of the Catholic Church as the, uh, as, as, as the source of moral authority and replacing it by the Anglican Church, uh, even through that process and the Magna Carta and, and British society basically rejecting this idea of a Leviathan in the way that Hobbes envisions it, at that moment, um, England never returns to any kind of despotic regime, right? So it's no, it's not a matter of uh, Europe being completely totalitarian, completely despotic, where and the United States being a completely free country. But what is absolutely the case is that Europe was a continent of war, of violence, of um, intolerance, um, of religious groups not accepting other religious groups. Um, different authorities trying to vie for power and centralizing their their power structures and that is something that terrified the intellectuals in america and that's the thing that they at all costs wanted to avoid and and that made their life in some way i would imagine emotionally a little bit easier at least like hey let's avoid those wars of europe let's not get involved in this kind of tribalistic um, mechanism where you identify as a Catholic or as a Protestant or as a... No, we're going to create a different kind of society, right? Again, by the way, here you see um, the Founding Fathers very much identifying as deists. Essentially, mm-hmm. yes, God exists, but there's no impact on our lives, so let's just get on with it. And that is, that's very much in line with that idea of let's not be European. Let's learn from the French philosophers. Let's, let's do things differently. And then, and then, and then, when you get to the 19th century, um, here then you have a world where, for two centuries, we've been building up the idea of individual empowerment, the importance of us um, making our own choices, and, and and not just with respect to professions or with careers or or with uh, political perspectives, but even Locke writes about aesthetics. Uh, Locke writes about uh, the importance of beauty. Others then continue that. Uh, that Hume has written about this and, and, and Kant very much writes about this in Germany. Um, and it's all about 
identifying yourself and, 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 and strengthening your own moral backbone and your aesthetic backbone and all that. And then all of a sudden you notice that the Industrial Revolution has kicked in and people become numbers. People, you know, maybe not the top top, but everyone else becomes, you know, just one out of millions. London, Paris, uh, later on the big American cities, they weren't necessarily pleasant places to live. So there then the importance of urbanization and the importance of architecture becomes tremendous, right? Not just from a practical perspective, but also from the political impact that it has. How do people feel about themselves, right? One of the big awakenings I had, I think, in, in the last time we talked was uh, essentially that if we consider Lockean thought applying quite heavily upon the U.S., I think they understood it fairly well within an agrarian fabric. I don't think they had any idea how to apply it to a city. I mean, the concept of a city, I, I guess the for the past 130 years, 140 years, as far as you know, I've read, there's always been this recurring... Um, theme that appears where we don't need the city anymore. Like uh, cyclically, you can see this every 10, 20 years appear that we don't, we don't need the city anymore. Even in the, surprisingly, in the 1880s, 1890s, I read this piece where it talks about the, you know, um, the city helps with commerce, but now with the uh, advancement of certain transportation routes, maybe we won't even need those. We can function fully as an agrarian society and the city, we can just get rid of this evil dirty uh, um, uh, tuberculosis filled land and they I, I suppose there's something quite simple of thinking about property when you think of farmland but when you think of property with multiple layers with verticality with people now sitting in very very close proximity to one another engaging in work that no longer is connected to the land at all it shifts quite drastically how you begin to value property rights, personal rights, and how much you begin to weigh a top-down control of, of personal movements in light of a better good, which is something completely or largely in contradiction to some of the underpinning currents of, of Lockean thought, right? That you That is something, that's a line you should never cross unless for cataclysmic reasons. Right, but which, which very nicely fits into this whole idea. In many ways, the, the people we're talking about now laid the foundations for modern-day environmentalist movements, mm -hmm. where this idea, uh, as of, uh, you know, there was this delight at having a stable currency so that you didn't have to accumulate too much, um, too, too many actual value, valuables around you. Um, the idea that it's all about being in sync with your surroundings, being being in sync with the environment, being in sync with nature, uh, because only that was a way for your human potential to shine. Um, so that then, and again, this is before the Industrial Revolution, then mm -hmm. the Industrial Revolution hits, and all of a sudden that completely collapses. That's yeah. that idea of, of being somehow... Um, in balance, in harmony with with nature, that that just was no longer there, right? And then, I think the balance actually. The, the, there's this one um, I, I can't remember the author, but it's about urban landscapes since the uh, like late 1800s, the current day. I, I think it was in 1984. I want to say Schuller. Uh, I can put the link in the description. But the, he talks about precisely this phenomena of first how we within American society, how we considered the rural. Uh, in the beginning phases, and I think it's sort of, I want to say late 1800s, early 1900s, maybe stretches a bit further, but it's a solidification of this thing we call the city. 
they regarded uh, rural life as agricultural, meaning that you should toil with the land, that something about this toiling, uh, um, plowing, planting, the seasonal, circadian, etc., uh, was the the habit through which you achieved a, a purity of morals, ethics, habits, and so on. And it transitioned uh, when it became quite clear that this agricultural lifestyle wasn't going to be for everybody, when the city kept gaining more and more momentum. And then the shift became, well, it's not that you should work in the fields, it's that you should be close to them or close to nature. And apparently the cemetery, strangely enough, is one of the first um, actions or the first urban interventions through which there's an effort to introduce a rural, a pastoral sort of uh, phenomena into the urban fabric. So I guess uh, cemeteries for a long time were places where people hung out, had parties and things of this sort. But it was a very conscious effort to embed the rural, the, the scenic rural, into the into the city but again there's a transition there it's not that you're a farmer it's that there's a the the cleansing qualities of nature are still maintained it's just how you interact with nature that's that's shifted and so then this would be some kind of similar dynamic to people actually having a house in the city but at the same time building a house outside of it uh, for whenever they could escape and find that refine that balance, right? So that yeah, yeah. And this, I think that, that there was a funny one of this where they, the the author who wrote this, um, I'm pretty sure it's David Schiller, but he he talks about how um, the author's writing about the values of the rural countryside, essentially lived in the city. That perhaps they would go on weekends and and perhaps they would go seasonally and, and engage with the rural countryside. An aristocratic uh, tradition, I would imagine, the, the ability to take these kind of breaks. Even in the, into the uh, 1920s, for instance, there's this um, emergence of, of the term uh, psychopath, uh, that in that time period when it hits, it refers specifically to young urban women who are single. Um, if they're suffering from psychopathy, uh, which at that time is considered a female ailment, again, as far as I've read into the discourse, much more people will... Uh, versed in this but it when it first hits the ground it's about young women single women in the city who essentially like engaging in city life things that we would consider just day-to-day -day normal um, if you're engaging in relationships and things of that sort you were considered that um, you you were considered a, a wayward woman uh, and you could the frightening part of it is you could actually be um, uh, imprisoned by the state and there's a quite unusual, mysterious mechanism through which this happens. Sometimes it's a it could be a neighbor reporting your behavior to the local jurisdiction. It could be your family doing it. It could be the jurisdiction themselves coming and getting you. But one of the ways in which they uh, allowed your release was uh, chemical castration, or or uh, uh, um, I forget the the exact term for uh, when it applies to women. But it's the you know they they can no longer reproduce after this point. Um, and they, it's linked very, very clearly with this conception that we need to control the gene pool that's widespread within American society at this time. The thought is if you have this psychopathy, you shouldn't be allowed to reproduce and embed that further within the, within the gene pool of the U.S. The, the unique point to me beyond all those points was one of the cures after this uh, chemical castration was they would bring you to the countryside so that you could engage in 
what were considered these pure affairs, knitting, stitching, uh, maybe some minor farming, most likely not because they thought it would cause hysteria within women if you engage with this heavy, heavy uh, labor, but cooking, you know, these essentially the agrarian lifestyle was seen as a cure for um, the urban life, which there's other pockets within which this is replicated, one of them being Nazi Germany, other one being um, communist China. That, you know, the, with uh, Mao, there's a very specific leaning towards the countryside, right? So you take people out of the city and educate them in the countryside, which was quite interesting that there was that kind of relationship. It's, it's fascinating. And uh, sociologically, I, I would imagine that this also connects to the threats that urbanization posed to traditional authorities, right? So it's a lot of, you know, philosophically that you can put this forward as, hey, being, being in harmony with nature, being, you know, in a healthy environment is, is good for your moral backbone and those kinds of things. But also simply the, the fear of what can happen if you put a million people together. Uh, how women, they may vote. It, it, yeah. How they may vote. It empowers women because all of a sudden they have all these options. There's no longer that traditional control mechanism where you live on a mansion and you know, the older generations make sure that the younger generations behave properly. That no longer exists within an urban society. And so there must be some kind of back and forth between, on the one hand, that practical fear of what this may mean for society and on the other hand, some philosophical back uh, backstory of, of, of what... A proper lifestyle and proper morality imply, right? Yeah, the proper proper is the key word, I think, there. Because there's a, if, from what I gather, it has to do with when certain habits that you see in lower socioeconomic classes begin to emerge in middle classes. That's when things start to shift. So in there's this, uh, um, I forget the term now, uh, parlor. A parlor uh, dating system used to be the thing to do, right? That you would have a, a portion uh, within the front of your house, small little room, guests would come, you'd have a chaperone, and most likely they'd give a little note card in the front door to signify they were coming, etc., all that stuff. But this was the proper way to date in the midst of a chaperone. Architecturally, obviously, most apartments don't have parlors within the, within, the, within the urban fabric. So you saw this complete collapse of the parlor system, for instance. You get the emergence of the automobile, the telephone, all these things which to us seem like neutral background entities, but there's quite fascinating writings talking about how the, the car is this new private room where people can engage in illicit affairs, the telephone connecting every household to dens of, dens of sin and things of this. And people are genuinely writing about the sins of electricity, the sins of telephones, the sins of, of cars as being something that's radically shifting society. What shifts, changes the perspective is when upper middle class folks are engaging in those exact same behaviors. And that, <clears throat> that has something to do, I think, with, at least in the context of psychopathy, for instance, it shifts, um, they maintain the definition uh, medically, but it shifts towards uh, excluding um, another portion of society that's seen outside of established gender roles, established family roles, which... Uh, in the 1940s and 50s, for instance, homosexuality is what psychopathy begins to uh, be correlated with. And then it slowly starts to shift with pedophilia and the emergence of, of um, sort of more violent, murderous sort of activities. That's, you know, the transition of just that definition alone has a very um, interesting narrative, narrative within urbanism. I do know, too, the 
the one point that I can make a connection to that someone who had also listened had pointed out was this uh, public administration. So Woodrow Wilson, from what I gather, is largely regarded as the father of this, at least within the U.S. And the way he approaches it is anti-corruption. So there's there's huge levels of corruption within within cities. And he says we need to think of it more as a business and that if the efficiency of a business, the sort of way of checking and balancing a business and they apply there's this thought that you can apply a non-political thing on top of the city which in itself is highly political uh, veiled as being non-political but in actuality it has quite quite significant premises that are very much different than what was vocalized as the Lockean premises of the U.S. So you have this very specific administrative technical um, bubble that's applied to cities in the same time with this birth of the expert. So there's a very unusual uh, link uh, overlap um, that happens to occur where you get the rise of an expert class and then the sudden uh, mobilization of this thing that gives them immense discretionary power. Gradually that begins to decline up to today, but still the framework of that exists uh, within cities as a whole. So an expert class that supposedly is apolitical, uh, but in reality actually makes hugely political choices and impacts society in many, many ways. Yeah, and some it's quite amazing how it's vocalized. Like I know um, Frank Lloyd Wright, um, for instance, and this is actually something com related with Le Corbusier as well. So two huge figures within architecture of this time period who actually have interesting sort of back and forth in a way. Um, where I think Frank Lloyd Wright says something about Corbusier. He builds one building and publishes 20 books. You know, like doesn't produce this much, even though Corbusier had a fairly prolific career. But they, Frank Lloyd Wright, I think, um, if I remember correctly from my undergraduate architectural education, there is a story about him. They ask him a question, at which he has news questions, something day-to-day -day life, at which he has no knowledge, and he proceeds to give an answer because he thinks of himself as a conduit of truth. Now, there's, I think there's a deep sort of uh, religious underpinning to Frank Lloyd Wright. And there's something quite similar with Corbusier where, where he, his famous, uh, his mo one of his favorite books of the time, I think he has two. One is uh, uh, Cervantes' Don Quixote, which uh, the frightening little tidbit that I know is that when his dog passes away, Corbusier actually uses the leather from the dog to uh, cover the book. Uh, again, peculiarities of Corbusier. But the other one is the life of Jesus. And he, his mother, uh, incidentally, is named Mary. Uh, the sort of figure that he picks up for himself, the animalistic figure, is a crow. And he has one of these churches, uh, um, uh, in, in in France that he builds. And he correlates his mother to the Virgin Mary and the dove to the crow. So there's a very specific view that he sees himself as a, a conduit for divine truth in a similar light combined with the expert it's quite a frightening um quite a frightening pairing is this somehow um also related to the fact that before let's say the 18 well 17th century uh main the main architectural projects that actually occurred certainly in europe were cathedrals. They were the ones that, that were seen as architectural works, maybe not 
um, celebrated as such um, in in the same way. But in in, in that sense, I would imagine that uh, if that is sort of the foundation of of Western European architecture, that that still has some kind of impact in the way that these architects in the 19th and even 20th century see themselves, right? I would imagine it must. I mean, I know for uh, Le Corbusier, there was this constant... um fear that he wasn't being taken seriously, uh, that he would lecture. And I think very similar to how we talked about Rem Koolhaas uh, today, that, that he he thinks that both of them understand that they've developed quite significant bodies of work, but they're for some reason not accepted. I think in Corbusier's light, it, he felt that he wasn't accepted by the broader uh, academic institutions throughout the world even though he lectured and so on quite were there prolifically books engaged in that kind of conversation i mean are they do they see themselves intellectuals who also happen to be architects or do they are they mm. expert architects who have a few intellectual opinions corbusier is an odd one to talk about with this one specifically because le corbusier isn't actually his real name uh he edouard genre i think is his uh, um, real name and then he creates this uh, nom de plume, you know, Le Corbusier, which he, I think he starts actually using when he starts a publication. But at least in my own study of him, I found that, you know, him as a person when he's writing to his mother, his uh, relatives, his um, close friends, he has a very porous, uh, doubting, vulnerable, organic way of writing. But when he's writing as Le Corbusier, he is the expert, uh, knows everything very specifically even though he may change his opinion within a year or two but every time he says that he is um, speaking of fact i don't know actually the the remnant of the the past works of architecture and how architects you know what a major architect was considered when they had this cathedral under their belt or you know where serious work was considered being done i don't i've, I've actually never studied the potential impacts of that but that would seem to make sense that there is this very significant common path amongst at least a few of the major architects of that time period gauging themselves as conduits of i mean for corbusier i think a prophet isn't a, a, a small word but I, I think he very much regarded himself in that light but in in, in that way i mean very much like cathedrals. I mean, imagine, I mean, if we now walk into a cathedral, um, well, it's clear how upset the world is about what happened to Notre Dame, for example. Mm. If we walk into a cathedral, we are filled with awe. And, 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 and even if you're not religious, you, 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 just, you just engulf yourself in the beauty of, of what was established six, six, seven, eight hundred years ago. Now imagine living in the 14th century and, and walking into that very same cathedral. Mm. If we are impressed by that, well, if you were a farmer from the 14th century who happened to be in the city for once and you walk into that cathedral, it must be like seeing God in front of your eyes. And that is kind of what, what the large architectural works even now in the 21st century are also trying to do, right? The the humongous skyscrapers, the the, the incredible... Um, buildings that form the center of the large cities, they're all designed to inspire all and to inspire some um, connection with that is greater than the than you as an individual, right? I think the scale at, with, at which it's happening maybe shifts it slightly. I mean, it's getting to such a large... Well, one is, I guess, it's not a... Typically, the religious institution isn't often the client. Um, 
but the scale at which <clears throat> it's being done has verticality, but the horizontality to me is the the huge one. I mean, you have single firms now designing, single firms being the architects and the planners for, but also single economic firms being the financial engines behind entire cities. And I, I mean, I, I guess you could argue Peter the Great, St. Petersburg, things of this sort, that it's happened in the past, but today it's happening at such a um, unusual scale that I don't know if it's so much the awe factor that's created. I don't know if it's actually vocalized. Uh, in a way, the maybe what is vocalized oftentimes which, with a large enough scale is um, some relief that as architects, we finally get the ability to apply with broad brushstrokes something upon society, which again, I find frightening and mortifying, but the other side of it um, is probably this technocratic vein that we can, if we can deal with, if we're given free reign over society on an urban scale, we can make everything much more efficient, productive, and uh, it's always these utilitarian terms, which in a way has some merit that if you take a heavy-handed view towards transportation networks, towards energy use, carbon footprints, you can achieve that, but it doesn't work so well with socioeconomics. Um, and that, in a way, is the um, the thing that I think architects and, and urbanists continue to struggle with. That They can deal with complex systems, but complex adaptive ones that deal with the human component in terms of giving their own people their own capacity to make decisions uh, their own fumbles, their own stumbles, establish their own socioeconomic trajectories. That's a, that's one that's continuously plagued um, architects at multiple scales. And so, in the in these large scale projects, is there is there still an intellectual sense of exploring uh, the, the 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 greater questions, or at the very least having some kind of ideological drive behind it? Because technocracy is very much the opposite of that. Right, technocracy mm. is very much about trying to. Just, yeah, as you're saying, looking for at the efficient and effective ways of making society do its thing. But you mentioned uh, St. Petersburg. Uh, that was very much with a very clear vision of, of Peter the Great connecting to the rest of the world, the window to Europe and the rest of the world, right? That that he felt Russia was lacking. So there was beyond the uh, the need to have a, or the, the, the perceived need to have a, new capital, a more effective capital, it also came with a very clear political ideological package. Mm. Is, is, is that then disappearing? And if so, then that would make, mean a huge shift in the role of architects, or at least how they see themselves. I think today there's a high degree of difficulty for an architect and urbanist to claim a political stance. I, I think Kulhas, um, there's a, uh, his name evades me now, but a, a fellow working in, in San Diego and um, Tijuana, uh, I want to say Teddy Cruz, but not the, not, <laughs> not that, that Teddy Cruz, <laughs> but there's a, another one. Um, but he, he's sort of clearly manipulating some things. I, I think he actually is one of the more subtle and productive um, persons within that realm, but he's not a, he's not a, um, a designer of cities in the in the respect that I was you know previously mentioning I, I don't know at that scale if you're in charge of an entire city design it's such I, I can't even imagine the level of uh, documentation required for something like that so even at that pace I assume thought and ideology kind of goes out the window there's one person I can think of is Norman Foster who actually talks about 
or Sir Lord Sir Norman Foster, Lord Norman Foster, I can't remember which, but he uh he talks about how they could be quite helpful actually if there's a range of cities um experimenting with uh networks of efficiency and networks of uh transportational networks, uh energy networks and things of this sort. But it I think that may be the one that mentions at that level, but I haven't heard anybody at least to my knowledge, beyond Teddy Cruz, there aren't too many dealing with the large scale um, and having a first-hand authorship of it that also espouse a specific socioeconomic understanding or a, or a political understanding or a depth of, of thought within that regard that's vocalized within the documents, at least. Right, and it, but would you... Is, is, is your perception that that is mostly the lack of vocalization or does it really not appear on the radar screen? Or is it... Is it just difficult because your clients uh, might have problems with your vision and you want to avoid that? Or, you know, so you, you don't want to take a position, certainly if your client is a government, for example, uh, elections happen and the next government comes into place and says, hey, actually, we don't like your ideological perspectives. So I can understand from, an, from a pure business perspective, it might be bad to vocalize any such, um, such ideas. Is it actually the case that those ideas no longer exist within the architectural realm? Or is it just that people are very careful in expressing them? The discourse, for sure, it exists. I mean, the political, socioeconomic critiques and so on. Within the practice, I have a feeling there's a deep um, an identity crisis almost that has something to do with this kernel of expert, non-political, neutral conduit that takes information and, and spits architecture out. Uh, that there's something about that that continues to be maintained. That there's this feeling that within large firms, part of the way it's pitched is that we have the wherewithal to take this complexity, to take this funding and produce a city. And within that, the, there's a thought of how do you make a, a good city? But I mean, it's not a... The definition of that for sure doesn't rest on, I think, solid... Um, discursive foundations but as a whole it's such a, a vast endeavor I assume that the um, I mean you're dealing with such high capital that to espouse any other I mean to take that I don't know an, an investing engine that would take that risk and then you know invest in that manner and then try to create radically different societal models typically it's sort of tax-free bubble zones that uh, um, behave somewhat like cities, but they're not really quite cities. Even um, tech sector, economic, you know, fire. Uh, what is it? Finance, insurance, real estate, plus tech. Like those are the typically what these things tend to support. So, but in many ways, that symbolizes then the complete decentralization. If you go to the cathedrals from the 13th century, and now you look at these huge projects in the 21st century. That 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 shows the radical shift in how society deals with these big projects, right? because. Maybe relatively the current projects, um, sorry, in absolute terms, the current projects are way larger than anything, obviously, that existed in the 13th century. But relatively, you know, a cathedral in the 13th century taking 70 years was an had an enormous impact, not just one, once it was done, but also the whole process. And yet it was with a very clear vision and a very clear idea of how this was going to impact society. In fact, it was there to impact society. Mm. It wasn't in any way a technocratic process. It wasn't the church needing a building for its administration. It was to inspire all, right? And I'm, I'm trying to think of how that then relates to 
that individualization that started in 17th, 18th century, is this then the combination of that or is technocracy? I mean, I'm trying to think of someone like Rousseau who obviously has a skepticism towards centralized ideology, that the individual needs to explore themselves, uh, needs to find their own path. At the same time, um, they would very much argue that the individual requires the right circumstances, and as we talked before, the, the, the balance, the harmony with nature and things like that. So they would certainly not feel particularly comfortable with the idea that architecture has no political or ideological impact on the individual, right? Uh, and I think that's typically what the, the discourse, may, you know, large critique of the, um, the profession may be. Uh, and again, I, there are pockets that I think do this fairly well, that they do engage with um, the, the, the politics of building, how to avoid, for instance, gentrification, um, how to uplift uh, um, lower socioeconomic echelons. Um, for, for instance, the, one of the uh, uh, big ones in the U.S. was at least, you know, at, at one of the universities I attended was uh, the Rural Studio founded by a guy by the name of uh, Samuel Mockby, whose specific mission was this very clear objective at creating architecture for um, the lower socioeconomic echelons of society. And how it was framed was within a specific bubble of um, Alabama that was uh, deeply impoverished. And so they, they clearly set up a, a structure to set that in motion. Um, I guess within academics, you become somewhat disconnected uh, from the profession as a whole, but gauging how these discussions happen, the panels occur at that large of a level. There's, there's, there's a fellow by the name of I can't remember if it's Bayard or Tafuri, but a fellow by the one of those two, who write about this. I think in the 1950s, 1960s. But they basically say, um, if the current path of architecture continues, that's so heavily ingrained within the current economic model. Um, what, what type of architecture will be produced as a profession, a discourse, and a discipline will be either one obsessed with aesthetics or obsessed with a large scale at the level of utilitarian functionalism. And I, I think Tafuri, who's like the, the bane of any architecture graduate student because it's he writes in a way that's extremely dense and never has sort of sections within his writing. So it's just this run-on sentence that goes on and on and on. But if you take sort of the three months required to read through three pages of it, um, he, it it's fairly fascinating how he's framing his uh, argument. And he's one of the few I've seen that he says something at the end of his writing. Um, and I hope it isn't Baird who said this, and I'm actually attributing it correctly to Fourier. But he says, history will tell whether we're, we are the avant-garde or the rear guard. That he thinks he's framing... Um, a radical thought, but he isn't sure that he may actually be framing a, a, a strengthening of the status quo veiled as as radical thought. But the two vein, the two sort of um, paths of architecture that he frames, one is obsessed with aesthetics to the level of um, uh, ig ignoring all else for that. For sure, that exists. Uh, phenomenology is uh, current within architecture that has a heavy heavy weight within both the practice and the discourse. And then the other one, this hyper utilitarian view of large scale. I mean, that's precisely this notion of how do we make cities smart, more efficient, increase carbon footprint efficiencies and so on. But it's always explained that way without often mentioning the human 
that lives within the city. So I, I guess, I mean, to tie it all back, that was the interesting, um, that was one question that I had, I suppose, is I, I can clearly see a kernel of, of why, I can't precisely vocalize it, but there's definitely something there within the inception of architecture and urbanism as we recognize it today that leads to some of these, at least this two-path system and the overall vulnerabilities of it. Within the 18th and 17th century, the odd one is the discourse is developed by one body and the action is developed by another body of people. But even the folks who are doing the acting are doing it in a way, based on what you're describing, that's assuming it's part of a process. Sure. It's quite fascinating. I mean, to, to see that that difference of... But is there something then that you see within the initial conception that leads to what we were talking about last time that democracy or this notion of democracy as a whole is so ubiquitously accepted or ingested maybe the better term <laughs> yeah maybe that maybe that is a better term because i think that that very much traces back to to the coincidence of history the the chance of history where um well it's not of course there's an they're interdependent but the fact that europe developed this and then became for two centuries, two and a half centuries, the most powerful uh, player in the world. And the, the first time that there was some kind of globalization where you would actually find first Portuguese and Dutch sailors in Asia and then everyone else followed from Europe and then the colonization period. It's sort of Europeans developed, European elites developed this idea of individualism, of, of the importance of challenging authority and at that time, they were also conquering the rest of the world, thereby exporting that automatically as some kind of universal truth. That therefore was unfortunate or unfortunate, depending on how you, uh, you view the idea of democracy and individualism in that sense. Um, Does it have uh, to do product... with seeing the rest of the world as a blank slate? Sure. Like, is that I, part of the issue? Well, very much. I mean, this is still very much the, the time where also um, religion plays an important role. And, and blank slate from a religious perspective, definitely not everything was like the United States. I mean, Europeans could never really do much with China because it's hard to argue that China, uh, you know, didn't have already a civilized uh, culture and uh, was very good at defending itself. But certainly this idea of we are more advanced in our understanding and um, in, in extreme terms, the rest of the world is just behind and needs to catch up with us. Well, if we then develop democracy as for us, the kind of, or individualism for us as the kind of social model that we are espousing, then obviously that becomes the universal truth, um, purely because of this political reality where Europe is ruling the waves, at least for that period of time exactly when this intellectual development happens and that then has an impact on everything else and i still think that we're very much caught in this this prison of not questioning those foundations there there's nothing i mean in many ways uh, it is fascinating and also beautiful to see intellectual developments like the ones in the 17th century 18th century there's you know there's i think there there's a lot of wealth and a lot of, of beauty to be found there uh, which then continues in some ways but we've mistaken that path for a deterministic truth. And, and that's where it becomes scary. That's where it goes wrong. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm just still struggling a little bit with how that then moves into the, the technocracy um, that, that we see nowadays. Um, 
Whereas I, I wonder if it's actually the in, in the end result of this enlightenment period or whether it is some kind of counterbalance by economic forces that no longer has any time or or space for these kinds of intellectual ideas. Um, maybe it's well, I would I would guess intuitively that it's the latter, but that's something mm. to explore perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I mean, building on, I guess, what we talked about uh, in last session. Um, so, so I started, and we can talk about this, I guess, in the next one, but the uh, looking briefly at the possible range of governance structures within localized bubbles within the U.S., it, not to give too much away before vetting it properly, but it appears it is very much like you were instinctively guessing that it largely functions with elected representative structures uh, but there are certain unusual pockets um, that are attempting to at least at a um, some level behave in quite different ways uh, but it's not at the level of city it's sort of these uh, small um, communal um, almost like co-ops. I mean, the, the Manhattan co-op is probably one of the earlier precursors of, of that that has remained somewhat viable today, but it's essentially the notion that you get a group of people together, purchase a piece of land or property and embed um, a differing version of society than exists within that bubble. But the question is still, as you're, as you were saying last time, whether when you need something drastic or emergency or urgent within that bubble do you then have to go and communicate with the broader traditional and societal that, structure that's still very much a system we live in right yeah. and that's uh, mm -hmm. all right well Balder, i'll let you go not to eat and not to eat <laughs> not to eat um, exactly maybe that could be like a meme that we continue <laughs> anyway thank you thank you so much part three <laughs>